I use the Surgeon General's advisory on naloxone in a lot of uh, presentations, and I go down his list and then say that this covers everybody, that everyone should have naloxone. Everyone should know how to use naloxone and have it available somewhere. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. An opioid overdose can be a terrifying experience. When too much of a drug like heroin or fentanyl floods the brain, it can cause your breathing to stop. Sometimes you wake up, sometimes you don't. But there's a miraculous drug called naloxone, or brand name Narcan, that can reverse an opioid overdose and save your life. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today we're going to be talking with Ryan Marino, an emergency room physician and medical toxicologist at Cleveland University Hospitals. We're going to be talking about naloxone, one of the most important drugs on the planet. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Also in the studio today, we've got Christopher Maraff and Zachary Siegel. Say hi, guys. Uh, yo, hello. Hi, guys. Uh, there's a lot of ground we want to cover today, such as drug-related disinformation on social media and myths about naloxone and why these lies, which are sometimes perpetuated by mainstream media outlets, are so dangerous. But before we get into that, in case people stop listening here, we kind of want to let you know where you can get naloxone online. We have a link in the show. Zachary wrote this really great article for Vice on how to get naloxone. You can also go to naloxoneforall.org. If you ever need it, you should have it on your hand. I consider it like a fire extinguisher. Everybody should have it in their home. You never know when you might need it. Yeah, I've always got some in my bag whenever I go out, got some in the car, everywhere. Yeah, I have it in my work bag, my car, my house. Yep, same. Absolutely. So naloxone, Narcan, Evizio, whatever it's called, it's a competitive opioid receptor antagonist. What that means is that it quickly binds to opioid receptors in the brain. It basically kicks out morphine or fentanyl molecules out of the receptor, stopping the overdose. People coming out of it can kind of be shocked, gasping for air, a little surprised. We'll get into this. There's this myth that people coming off on naloxone will just attack you, and that can prevent people or discourage them from reversing an overdose. We're going to talk about why that's so stupid to think that. Um, that is one of the many hills that Ryan dies on on Twitter. <laughs> well, Ryan, if if I could if I could start with that, I mean, I've seen dozens of reversals, and I've never actually seen that happen except for the night that they were reversing people that were on synth- that, uh, synthetic cannabinoid-laced uh, fentanyl heroin. So I think what was happening was they were withdrawing the, the feel-good part that was maybe soothing them a little bit and leaving them with nothing else left. And there was some violence, but is, is that ever typical in your in your uh, field? I mean, in the, but once they get to the emergency room, because mine are usually peer-to-peer you know, reversals. No, no, it's not. Um, I mean, I have personally been involved in hundreds of reversals of opioids at this point with Narcan. Um, I mean, sometimes people are combative people in general. It has nothing to do with the Narcan or not. But I mean, I could count on one hand the times when it's been a problem. Um, and oftentimes it will be that you've now unmasked a kind of calming, op- calming or in this case, I guess, overdosing effect of the opioid. And if there's something else on board like a synthetic cannabinoid that does actually make people like agitated and sometimes aggressive, then, then that can be a problem, but it's, it's not the Narcan. Um, 
and it, it's not even really the overdose so much, but uh, people can definitely be surprised. But violence is not not something that I've seen and is not reflected in the literature. I, I saw this debate recently come up when one of the airlines, maybe it was Delta, made a big deal about adding naloxone to their first aid kits only after someone on one of their flights died. And on Twitter, you know, rarely people outside of our bubble are commenting on these issues, but so many people who are replying to these headlines about naloxone and and Delta and airlines, they were all being like, well, what if someone wakes up and threatens all the other passengers? And it was fucking idiotic, but this stuff is really, it's just a perfect example of how this kind of disinformation like is actually harming people. Because if you think someone waking up from uh, an overdose with naloxone on a plane is going to like bring down the plane, well, you're not going to have naloxone on the plane. And it's just utterly a bird brain to like think that that's going to happen. Yeah. I remember that incident where someone died on a commercial flight was kind of a big matchbox uh, powder keg moment in terms of this specific myth and people did kind of go crazy on social media spreading that rumor none of it was based on any actual events it's, it's all kind of like hearsay secondhand this is something i was taught by someone else who heard it from someone else that one time this happened um and i mean there was an incident kind of recently where someone who had an overdose was revived um they also happened to be like a, a violent criminal and had multiple guns on them and i think they ended up shooting a fireman like sometime later. Um, and this was kind of put forward both on social media and in the actual media as somehow related to the overdose reversal, uh, when it was really just an issue with kind of violence in general, um, and like guns and lack of scene control. Um, but I, yeah. I, I wrote an editorial about this, uh, the debate after the Delta death, um, and, did a pretty deep dive into like the medical literature because naloxone has been around for decades. I mean, it gets used every day in kind of anesthesia care um, for people who get a little too much opioids uh, during surgery or after surgery. And there's just no evidence that there's any increased risk of aggression, violence, or anything like that. I'd like to comment on what you said about scene control. That's that's so important. In Philadelphia, if a peer is doing a reversal and the police come, they stand back, they watch, they observe, they don't do a warrant check. If you're in a community where you know the police are going to come search your pockets, check you for warrants, you know, those kinds of decisions can can shape the way, uh, you know, a reversal is is viewed by somebody that's, you know, just been reversed. They might run. They might do a million things. Um, And, you know, I, I would commend the Philadelphia police for doing that. I mean. The only time I ever actually reversed somebody, the police came, saw we had the scene under control and stood there and smoked some cigarettes with the EMTs until we like finished up and like nobody got arrested. There were definitely people in the lot with drugs. So I don't know what it's like in your community or, or yours or that and, you know, but I think that, that that's a really big uh, policy discussion. You know, we, we need to have police that understand what we're doing out there. Yeah. And that's such an important point. I mean, Certainly not, not until recently, but years ago, especially when this was kind of all starting, I have seen people kind of slam a lot of Narcan in and use derogatory terms to talk to someone or kind of like rough them up a little bit in kind of the pretext of waking them up from the overdose. And that whole kind of attitude, the way we treat people is obviously going to influence how, how they wake up. Um, if, if you're calling someone a, a junkie and saying like, you want to die or these other kind of horrible things that 
society tends to do to people who use drugs, then obviously their response is not not going to be good. But it, it's not the Narcan. It's probably more of a an us issue than a chemical issue. I've also heard that, and I, EMTs have told me this, they will use a heavy dose of naloxone to like intentionally throw the person in withdrawal to make them sick so they can then feel the consequences of what they did, right? Which is just like, that'll make someone wake up in severe pain and sickness. And yeah, I might respond by throwing a punch, being like, fuck you. Like, why'd you just slam me with that? Yeah, I didn't need a a flood of this shit. I just needed some to wake me up. Like, it, I don't know. I, I've heard that and it's infuriating. Titration is a, dis- a discussion that's going on here now because we don't have injectable naloxone in Philly, so it's kind of an art to titrate through one of those spray, um, you know, the, the adapt or um, certainly not the, you can't do it with the Invisio, but, you, you know, everybody here needs more than one anyway. So, um, but yeah, I mean, with injectables, I mean, you can control how much you put in. Is, is that is that because of fentanyl? Like fentanyl just needs more... Uh, a higher dose. And Ryan, do you want to talk about some, like, there's another whole myth that fentanyl is too strong for naloxone. So we need a a better antagonist. Yeah. So it seems like some of these more potent opioids will need a little more naloxone. It's usually not anything crazy, which is kind of the rumor going around that people need like 10, 20 doses of Narcan. Um, If someone ever gets more, I mean, even 10 milligrams of Narcan, which the nasal spray is four milligrams. So, I mean, giving two nasal sprays is probably reasonable and that definitely can be uh, justifiable. But in these other cases, it means someone needs something more than Narcan. There's something else going on. Um, and I mean, I've personally treated people who have overdosed on carfentanil. I mean, we've confirmed that it was carfentanil and they did not need much Narcan, uh, not a significant amount more than a, a usual like heroin overdose. What I find interesting about naloxone is that it's such a safe drug. You know, you can't really abuse it, but people are still so afraid of it. There was this study that came out recently published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, um, and it found that just 2% of patients who need naloxone can will get it. And I think that fear of, oh, if they get naloxone, we're going to have this problem, is driving this lack of access. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, naloxone cannot be abused, but for whatever reason, people seem to think that it has an abuse potential. And I was just reading the news story this week about some company that's trying to develop an implant that can detect if someone's overdosing and give them a little bit of naloxone. And all of the coverage I've seen has said that critics are worried that this is going to encourage risky behaviors. But this is a life-saving device. I mean, just putting lifeboats on ships encourage risky behaviors, just putting airbags in cars encourage risky behaviors, kind of ridiculous. Um, and it all kind of goes back to a very flawed single paper that I, to my knowledge has never actually been published in any peer-reviewed format discussing this concept of a moral hazard for naloxone, where the implication is that because people have an antidote uh, and a way to not die, it'll encourage them to kind of go to the brink of death just so they can be brought back, which, I mean, it's kind of like the, the plot of the movie Flatliners. And it is kind of stupid if you think about it. I don't think anybody wants to risk death. Uh, That's not how drug use even works. And like I said, it was only this one paper that kind of has snowballed, um, was picked up by every news source and is now kind of part of the like popular narrative on naloxone when there's a lot of other 
much better evidence out there that says the opposite. Right. That's the the whole Narcan parties myth as well, that like people will gather in a room, take a whole bunch of fentanyl or a bunch of other opioids and overdose on purpose so they can be revived from naloxone, which is just so completely ludicrous. Nobody wants to go instantly into withdrawal from opioids, which is what naloxone basically does. Yeah. And so for the people that they would be kind of implying would chase these higher highs and kind of risk death, those are the people who are at risk for most withdrawal symptoms. Um, And yeah, withdrawal is miserable. Opioid withdrawal is, I mean, one of the most miserable conditions I can think of for someone to go through in terms of like medical conditions. Uh, It's very unpleasant. Like everything in your body hurts. You got fluids coming out of every, every orifice. So I, I don't think anyone would wish that upon themselves. I've never seen anybody more than even a little wobbly still. I mean, it, it maybe the fentanyl, I mean, full-blown withdrawal. I mean, I know it takes a bit of time to kick in. About how long would you say from, from reversal to precipitated withdrawals or would, would you be talking about, you know, I've spent 20, 30 minutes and people still seemed like they were dipping out, you know? For the, the nasal spray, the peak effects, I think, don't occur till around like 30 minutes or so. And I, I think most of the time, I mean, it, even the four milligram nasal spray is a dose that shouldn't precipitate withdrawal in, in a lot of people. It's not too much. Whereas something intravenous naloxone definitely makes people a lot sicker and is a lot quicker. We should talk about, you know, something that you just pointed out, Ryan, which is like the way that disinformation and misinformation about harm reduction in particular spreads and how like both sides narratives sort of take hold where like there's one case of some police officer who says that he touched fentanyl and it made him overdose. And then there's one study that finds like maybe somewhat somewhere sometime someone wakes up combative and then that gets part of all the coverage. Now, every article has to mention that. Like, you spend so much time on Twitter. We all do sort of calling out this stuff. Can you, like, walk us through, like, how this misinformation sets in? It's a weird phenomenon. For all the advances we've made in, like, technology and having everything available at our fingertips, I feel like disinformation is kind of at at a higher level than I would have expected And I think a lot of it does have to do with kind of social media. But like you said, also this idea that every side needs to be covered. Like with with the fentanyl misinformation, a lot of times they'll quote some law enforcement officer, and I have nothing but respect for law enforcement, but they don't have a background in like drug sciences and kind of how fentanyl works per se. And it's like, if I went to the mechanic and I told them how to do their job, uh, it just doesn't really make sense. And for whatever reason, this kind of just gets put forth. No one seems to question it. No one seems to fact check this. And I I do have a feeling that it is specifically related to drugs. Because, I mean, if someone said there was plutonium at a scene, I mean, no one would ask the, the police officer down the street to comment on how plutonium works. So it's kind of a, a very bizarre phenomenon. And it does seem to just be increasing by the day. Ryan, um, are you aware of any confirmed reports of, you know, a police officer and, or any other first responder dying from transdermal, t- you know, is it even possible? It is not possible for all intents and purposes. And as a disclaimer here, I mean, nothing is like 100% in 
this universe. So if someone wanted to take fentanyl powder, mix it up into a solution, maybe even add some heat, uh, seal it against their skin, then yeah, that'll absorb at some point. It will take hours. And at that point, it's definitely not an accidental exposure. For someone to just touch, I mean, these very small amounts, it's the amount someone would be injecting, whereas the kind of amount you would need to absorb through your skin is probably 10 or 100 times the amount you would need to inject. There's just no no way that this is ever going to happen. And of all these reports, not a single one has ever been confirmed. It's very easy to detect even this tiniest amount of fentanyl in someone's system. Um, the reports where someone has actually died, and I think there have been a few cases where law enforcement has, has died and there has been a concern. It ended up that they were actually using drugs, which goes to show kind of, I mean, substance use is something that affects everyone and law enforcement isn't immune. But again, I mean, of all these stories, the thing that strikes me the most is that most of the time the symptoms aren't even consistent with an overdose. It'll be really nonspecific stuff like tingling or heart racing. And I mean, sometimes it'll be like rapid heartbeat, uh, rapid, shallow breathing, kind of things that are totally the opposite of what opioids do actually. Those are like the symptoms of panic. Yeah. The one thing I can say is that it's definitely not opioids. And for whatever reason, people keep saying that it is, and it keeps getting printed. And these, these stories are all still on the internet. None of them have really been corrected. People post them on, on Facebook, wherever, and share this information. And every time there's another one, people are sharing this. People are warning their neighbors to wipe down shopping carts and not go to public pools. It's really just kind of spiraled out of control and taking on a life of its own. Yeah, and I think like it's so hard to like nip this stuff in the bud. That's why I think what you're doing on Twitter is so important. As soon as these things start getting traction, like you're there and then 10 of us start backing you up and commenting and replying. And and like there is like a mobilized force of us out there who are combating this stuff. But like most people reading like WGTV news site or some random Arkansas local thing like they're not on Twitter they're not following us they have no idea that we're all sort of screaming that this is wrong and so it's just like I don't know how to reach those people like we're all sort of bubbled out but there's so many Facebook shares like I don't go on Facebook at all but like things get shared way more on Facebook than they do Twitter it's like the the solutions to this problem seem just like unfathomable yeah. And I mean, a big, a big issue here is like the accountability of these news sources, but probably also since more people are getting information from places like Facebook and Twitter, it would be nice if they would do something about misinformation. And it doesn't really seem like they care that much. So I don't, I don't really know how this is going to be solved going forward for the people who don't have a good place to get facts from. They're just going to kind of hear more and more untruths. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Those aren't the people that are going to be doing reversals anyway. Police, perhaps. But, you know, if you're using among others, it's going to be your peers, most likely. It's the average, like, TV news watcher just is kind of, like, this is all just a sideshow to their life for the most part. A lot of times, I think police are also just careless with stuff. They open it up, you know, a bunch of powder flies out. Um, They've done studies where, like, people will go catch a smoke without washing their hands or have a sandwich. Um, there's a lot of ways that materials can be ingested. Yeah, and I think that's concerning for a lot of other reasons. I'd be more concerned about, I mean, God knows what else is out there. 
uh, but not even drugs per se. For people to just be touching unknown powders, unknown substances without wearing gloves, without washing their hands, uh, kind of raises some other concerns that are not related to opioids and the fentanyl issue we have. That's another thing. I mean, with social media, people just don't like to hear anything that challenges them and kind of this anonymity and like 24-7 availability of it makes them maybe feel like they're kind of the expert. Um, I mean, I think look at like the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, these people are just like sitting at home reading blogs and then arguing with like people who are designing vaccines on social media uh, as if they're from the same footing. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. You've kind of become this voice on Twitter that really calls out some of this disinformation, vaccines especially. Um, how did that come about? Like, where did you decide to just start becoming a Twitter personality? I, I don't know. I mean, the the biggest issue was these, like, drug myths. And, I mean, it definitely started with naloxone was probably the biggest thing um, I was involved in, because especially at at the time, I mean, I, I still am very pro naloxone, and I'm trying to encourage it. But uh, several years ago, when all of this started, I was trying to encourage naloxone use and working on a study through multiple emergency departments to try to get doctors to prescribe more naloxone, um, and was finding that a lot of them kind of believed myths uh, or had these really kind of crazy and false beliefs. And just trying to target this at the source. I mean, I've seen a lot, a lot of these issues in real life. I've seen people not get resuscitated because people are scared that they can overdose just by being near someone who overdosed. I've seen that have very real and adverse outcomes. I've seen kids who were very sick whose parents were anti-vaccine. And I mean, I think most recently, these crazy infections are now on the rise. I have to think about measles, which isn't even really something I learned much about in medical school because the United States was considered measles-free for so long. I guess I would say that it, it just comes kind of from uh, my real life and, and work and seeing how this kind of misinformation is growing and actually hurting people. It has real-world consequences outside of Twitter. Ryan, you, you may have mentioned where you're from, but where, where, where are you um, from exactly? So I'm from outside of Cleveland originally, um, but I spent a large chunk of time in um, Pittsburgh. Most in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh right? right. Yeah. We both come from cities then that have sort of like robust harm reduction. And I'm, I may be skewed by that, like in the sense that like, I've never seen anybody afraid to touch a person who's overdosing. I mean, it's just one of the drawbacks and I guess benefits of Kensington and Philadelphia is that you, you see the real deal a lot and, and you kind of like, you know, everybody knows what's going on. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I can't Im- imagine a backwater somewhere where, where naloxone would be considered like a dangerous substance. It's, it's, uh, it's counterintuitive to me from you know, where I sit. You know. People's naloxone even gets like seized by police, like outside of like Chicago, where I am in Philly and like all these hubs. This stuff is totally viewed from like an alien's perspective like people really really just believe in the dumbest shit about this yeah i've actually heard that it's been considered drug paraphernalia before yeah um in arizona i knew somebody who got arrested for having naloxone because it was an intramuscular syringe with it and he had he had nothing else and it was he got pulled over you know he, he but he got arrested because he had syringes and it was in naloxone and the police were like what the hell is this and so the syringe uh, access program that i was a part of had to work like contact the police chief and be like what the hell are you doing 
Yeah, fentanyl test strips are still considered paraphernalia here, but nobody's ever been arrested for him, I don't believe. So, like, out, outside of, of Chicago, um, the Chicago Recovery Alliance distributes tons of syringes and naloxone, like, all over the Midwest. And, like, in southern Illinois, people get caught with syringes or Narcan or IM syringes that Chicago Recovery Alliance distributes. And people who work for CRA will like show up to the court dates and, and, and testify on behalf of their participants in some like random small county in Illinois and, and try to like convince the judge that like this is ridiculous and that they literally gave this person the thing that they got arrested for. And like, yeah, like Troy was saying, like it, these harm reduction groups that, that do whatever they can to get whatever people need, like go above and beyond to, to try to get people out of trouble and, and make sure that they have what they need. Yeah. And so we, like, we have these obviously not, not great laws. And so, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into like my personal opinions on drug laws, but considering naloxone or test strips be some sort of criminal substance or paraphernalia is clearly ridiculous. But I think, I mean, that in itself kind of relates to this, this misinformation that we have. And it probably all stems from kind of our, our societal beliefs about drugs that are all, all derived from like propaganda and misinformation and maybe like religious moralization, where we view this as totally different than kind of any other situation for no good reason at all. Yeah, I'm I'm working on a piece now about recovery and and, and medical assisted treatment and medication assisted treatment where like even progressive you know drug reformers think it's we just need to get people to the point where they're just well if they feel good we've gone too far and and I I think that's that's been uh, something that's kept a lot of people on you know getting suboxone strips and still selling them for dope here you know because it's okay to want to feel good and also be safe you know um and i think that's a message that that should be spread more yeah and if you're talking about something that gets a bad rap i mean medicines for opioid use disorder like suboxone or buprenorphine and methadone i mean are even beyond kind of the rap that naloxone gets i can't tell you how many people will tell me that they don't want to just be on another drug or people will say that it's replacing one addiction with another I mean, these are literally medicines. There's decades of evidence backing their use. They're no different than medicines for other things, uh, other than the fact that it's it's treating drugs. Uh, and we have all these kind of weird biases against drugs. Methadone, like if you look at it, it's one of the most studied drugs like on the planet. A lot of drugs that get like passed by the FDA and get marketed and are prescribed widely have nowhere near as much of the uh, evidence base as methadone has. Like it's been studied and studied and studied like to death, and still like it, I think it's like a really good example of just like how like all the science can be on someone's side. And that what really matters, though, is the perception, is the politics, is is ideology. Like, that constantly is weighed against 
decades of like pristine medical literature. Yeah, it's all about public perception. And, and even misinformation, you know, there's there's no contraindication against prescribing buprenorphine and the benzodiazepine together, but there's lots of doctors that, that will, you know, cut you off or won't do it, or there's a belief that, you know, it's, it's just going to be fatal right off the bat. And like, that's definitely not true. Yeah, especially if, I mean, the thing people miss with that, which I mean, even like professional associations put that recommendation forward, um, which is kind of disappointing. But if, if you're giving someone buprenorphine, I mean, theoretically, you're replacing like heroin or some whole agonist opioid that has a very high risk of overdose. And so if, if they're taking benzos and heroin, would that be safer than buprenorphine and benzos is just kind of the question that I always ask. Um, and I, I don't think people think of those things. There's just the stigmas there uh, and there's no getting around it. Since we're on the topic of buprenorphine, you know, sometimes it comes mixed, formulated with naloxone in it. Uh, that's usually called suboxone. Does that actually prevent abuse? I mean, I've heard some arguments that like, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, naloxone is not active orally, so if you take the pill, the buprenorphine should work as prescribed. But if you were to inject it, allegedly it won't provide a high. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak to why this was developed, but I think the reason behind it is to try to prevent people from injecting. Um, and so naloxone through your like GI tract has pretty minimal to almost no absorption. So if you take it either sublingually or in your cheek, whatever, then none of the naloxone should get absorbed, but you still get all the buprenorphine gets absorbed. And I am not a fan of these kind of like gotcha formulations of drugs where we're just trying to prevent people from doing whatever. Um, and I mean, in this case, injecting suboxone. And I've been told by people that there are ways to get around this. But I do think, I mean, in this case, I've seen, I mean, the alternative, there's a plain buprenorphine formulation. And pe when people inject like crushed up pills, there are a lot of complications and it's not great. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't, I don't want to trick people. I don't, I don't like this gotcha mentality. But on the other hand, I mean, buprenorphine, because it has so much free value because it's not being prescribed and almost all of the time it's being used to kind of treat withdrawal, treat addiction. Um, but there, there are going to be people who inject crushed up pills and stuff and there can be really bad complications from that as well. Well, I feel like, and I, this is something I've encountered, that uh, number one, the naloxone with buprenorphine doesn't actually prevent some people from injecting it. They'll just do it anyway. They'll do more of it. And also, yeah. it's a way of extending patents. Like, the FDA is considering right now adding abuse deterrence to stimulants like Adderall. And it seems like that's just a way for big pharma to keep cashing in on these chemicals that uh, you can't patent. They're not copyrighted. Uh, I was going to say, definitely, I'm more cynical than that. I think it was like a, a calculated decision to make money because you had two off-patent drugs. And like Ryan said, I mean, every doctor I've spoken to says the window on the naloxone is only about 20 minutes like in it. And, you know, the people here used to like let the buprenorphine dissolve and then spit thinking they were getting rid of the naloxone. You know, like, I mean, it it's the bup that pushes the receptors off anyway. The naloxone is completely unnecessary. That is a really good point because the buprenorphine has a much higher affinity for the receptors. So is the naloxone really even going to have an effect? They're both competing. It's a pretty small dose of naloxone. I can't really say that, that they would probably, the effect would probably not be 
too appreciable. There are definitely ways around it. People definitely get around it. And yeah, it probably, it probably is a lot of this kind of pharmaceutical game playing, I would say. Um, I mean, it's something that sounds good to like the public. It sounds good to board members, probably if you're saying these are abuse deterrents, quote unquote, but yeah, there, there's probably something else going on. Yeah, I, I think it, I've looked into this. It's definitely a mix of both of those. Like on the one hand, it looks good that there's naloxone in it and it's a more palatable, better, safer option than methadone. And like in some cases, like that's just true. Like buprenorphine is harder to overdose on than methadone. And the naloxone is, is really like not a factor in that. And then in terms of like the the pharmaceutical industry maneuvering, I think insulin's a really good example of this. Like insulin was sold by the, the University of Toronto researchers who made it for $1. Like they wanted to make sure that no matter what, that the drug that they discovered would be accessible to everyone. And they literally made a dollar each off of it. Like I think they all got literally $1. And then now what like all these companies do, they, they tweak it, they make a new device. Like they do all these little things to just completely jack up the price. And that's, Definitely partially the reason why insulin is so expensive now. And also, I don't know, Ryan, how much you know about about this, but the price of naloxone is just fucking going up and up and up and up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's probably, I mean, besides like biases and stigma aside, the biggest barrier to getting naloxone everywhere is just the cost. And I mean, the injectable form is pretty cheap. It's been generic for a long time. This nasal spray, I mean, was developed to kind of combat this overdose problem we were having. Um, and it was designed, I mean, so that even like an untrained child could use it literally. And now here we are, it's, it's not really available to anyone who can't afford it. And the generic version has been approved by the FDA. It's yet to hit the market. So I'm hoping that that will kind of improve things here. But if you don't have good insurance and you're paying for this yourself, I mean, it's like $140 for a two pack, which is two uses which is pretty expensive. And I mean, if we're talking choosing between that and I mean, choosing between something else, like I can think of a million things that I would rather get for less than $140. Um, Do you know about Jack Fishman? So like he's the the, the researcher who first applied the, the patent to naloxone. And it's a crazy story. Like this was in the 60s and his son like died, I think in the early 2000s. And his wife, Joy Fishman, is now like a, a big harm reduction advocate. And she gave like a keynote at a Drug Policy Alliance conference years back. And like she goes to like the harm reduction conferences. And it's just like a crazy story to hear that. Like literally the guy who invented the drug, naloxone, who patented it, his son died of an opioid overdose and they did not have naloxone in the house. They didn't carry it. It wasn't like normal at the time to even know what this drug was. And the family had no idea that that they needed this drug around. And it's just, it's an amazing story. I mean, very sad, but that Joy Fishman is now out there like advocating for this is remarkable. Yeah, I did not know that about the, the son. That is pretty remarkable. Um, but yeah, Jack and Joy Fishman, I mean, are big big harm reduction figures. I think they've done a lot, a lot of good. Um, if I could turn the conversation a bit to toxicology, you're in Pittsburgh, you were, you were in Pittsburgh, so you would be seeing probably a very different set of analogs than we are out here. 
closer to Ohio's issue, I would think. I know there was an attempt, I think, by the medical examiner's office to, like, sort of test samples. Do you find, like, many toxicologists I speak to that there's too much of a conclusion to jump from post-fatal fluids, like, testing that to what caused a fatality? And do we need more sort of data on what these street drugs are composed of, like, really? And whether, you know, to tell whether they were used concurrently or at, at, you know, at separate times. Forensic toxicology is like a whole additional subspecialization. And so I don't want to step too much like beyond uh, what I'm actually qualified to speak in. But in terms of like forensic reports and these kind of drug fluid levels, whatever, it is really hard to determine an exact cause of death. Uh, certainly there's a lot of clues, but at the end of the day, it's usually just kind of a, a best guess drug levels in a dead body or a corpse will be very different from what they were in life. Um, And depending on where the measurements are from, they can also be very different and may not actually relate to kind of what we would think of as like a blood level or something. And yeah, it is really hard to tell if these drugs were mixed together, if people were using them at the same time, if these were all kind of unrelated. There Certainly you can kind of look at the breakdown of different metabolites and stuff. But I mean, even if we think of like cannabis is being legalized across the country. Um, and so people are looking at ways to kind of test like living people, um, see if they're intoxicated on cannabis. Uh, and there is no good way to do that. There isn't like a, a breathalyzer for marijuana. Um, and the same thing goes to kind of these postmortem things. And not to mention, I mean, that breathalyzers are very inaccurate devices as well. But yeah, it's it's kind of a, uh, a little bit of art and a little bit of science. Um, and then at the end of the day, you try to try to come up with the best guess. But it's, it's never really 100%. I kind of want to talk about uh, some other competitive antagonists. If you have overdose on something that's not an opioid, you can't really use naloxone. But there do exist drugs that are sort of similar. Um, there's flumazenel for benzos, and there's another one called RO15-4513 for alcohol. Um, but there really isn't one for stimulants yet, if I'm correct. And and we're we're hearing all these reports of like the fourth wave of the overdose crisis. It's going to be more stimulants. People are taking meth and cocaine more. We kind of need a competitive antagonist for stimulants, wouldn't you say? Yes and no. The idea of like antidotes sounds like they're kind of a perfect solution to things. And in the case of naloxone, I mean, it is a pretty perfect solution. There's kind of no no downside. But for like flumazenil, which is the one for benzos, that is does have pretty significant side effects. Um, and I mean, one of the big risks is that if you reverse benzos in someone, I mean, you can cause seizures. Um, and I mean, while opioid withdrawal is really miserable, benzo withdrawal is actually like pretty severely life-threatening and can be life-threatening pretty quickly. And the same could be said for alcohol. For like a benzo overdose, I mean, people are going to be sleepy. They might be totally unresponsive, but almost all of the time, if it's just benzos, I mean, there's no reason someone would not be breathing. And so I don't really see any reason to reverse that overdose because they'll probably be fine. They just need to clear it out. Um, And in terms of stimulants, it it would be nice, I guess, if there was like a, a... perfect way to kind of reverse them. And we have some drugs that can kind of do similar things. I mean, like clonidine, which is oftentimes used for opioid withdrawal, even though it has no effect on opioid receptors, does actually work on kind of similar receptors uh, as stimulants and has kind of the opposite effect. That actually works quite well from experience. <laughs> yeah. And that was, the next thing I was going to say is honestly, the, the big toxicity from stimulants is people get 
so much of this like overdrive in your body. And if you give them some sort of downer like a, a benzo, then you can kind of mitigate all of these effects. And the, re- the reason people die is, I mean, certainly you can have bad, bad things like heart attacks and strokes and stuff just from like your blood pressure and your heart rate going up. But more often than not, I mean, it's their body temperature rises. They're having like muscle hyperactivity. Um, you get like muscle breakdown proteins in your blood that then give you kidney damage. People get dehydrated, these kind of things. And that's all, all pretty preventable with just kind of good sedation, like monitoring people's temperature. So again, it's going to be an issue of like people not using alone, and kind of being able to seek treatment. There, there are kind of, I guess, some, I don't know if antidote is the right word, but yeah, clonidine. There's an IV version of basically the same kind of drug as clonidine called dexmedetomidine um, that is pretty close to an antidote, I would say, for things like cocaine, meth, um, other stimulants like that. This this reminds me of, and maybe what I'm about to say isn't quite in line with what you're talking about, Troy, about like sort of, you know, looking for antidotes and solutions, but something that always sounded to me as like a kind of dumb avenue for research is the like heroin vaccine or some something like that. Like, do you know anything about that, Ryan? Like the hunt for a vaccine for heroin addiction i mean not to like disparage the people who or do research into this who know much better than me but i don't i don't know that a a vaccine or like these kind of substances is really ever gonna work Uh, i just think it's kind of like a a fallacy because i mean i guess you can be genetically predisposed to like substance use but a a lot of times i mean people either like the way it feels um, or they're using a specific substance for some reason, um, it's not like they just found it um, or got into their system. And I think most recently, I mean, I saw some publication about a fentanyl vaccine. And it, it seems to me like there are much better avenues we could be pursuing, like getting more naloxone out there um, instead of vaccinating mice for fentanyl. Or whatever. Yeah, like like I've just seen so much money poured down this hunt for a vaccine. And, you know, I, I don't want to like disparage the pursuit of knowledge in science. But to me, where I reacted to learning about this right away was just that like, it seems to be operating off of different assumptions about addiction than maybe I have. Like, I think addiction sort of along the lines of like Maya Solovitz or Mark Lewis, that there's like neurodevelopmental and environmental processes going on. And of course, there's like some genetic component, like whether your body likes the feeling or not, like that's, you know, has a lot to do with your sort of biological constitution, right? And then, but what I... And, and I think that the vaccine just seems like to be uh, coming from a, a very like neurobiologically reductive set of assumptions about addiction and, and doesn't really reckon with like more complex things about it, like pleasure and desire and, and the psychology of it. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, I think it, it is kind of overly simplistic. And it seems to me, and maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but it seems like a fallacy in itself. I mean, if you give someone a vaccine for heroin, are they just going to become addicted to cocaine? Or, I mean, if you give someone a vaccine for like opioids, then what do you do when they have like a horrible accident and need, need a bunch of opioids? Um, I mean, there's just right. kind of like a lot it's like of my, my worst nightmare 
for somebody on Vivitrol or something, like if they get in a car accident, like what's going to happen? <laughs> Sounds terrible. Yeah. And I mean, th- like Vivitrol can be overcome, but I don't know these kind of more like biologic immunogenic mechanisms that they're trying to pursue are going to be a lot harder to overcome than basic, just like competitive receptor um, effects. And I think the other big issue is spending money and time on this when we have a lot of really good solutions available that just are not being used at all seems like an uh, inappropriate direction of resources. Um, like yeah. that study that we talked about earlier, I mean, less than 2% of people who are at high risk for overdose receive naloxone. So we got a lot of work to do there. Um, there was a big study that just came out uh, that showed people who present to the emergency room have like, a, a, I think it was 5% risk of dying within the next year. And these are young people who don't have any other appreciable disease. So a 5% death rate for like someone in their 20s is is pretty astronomical. And I think it's crazy that that's happening in 2020. I don't think anyone would die from an opioid overdose in 2020. Um, I mean, we've had an actual antidote available for decades. We have medicines that can prevent prevent overdoses. We know ways people can use opioids safely. So kind of every avenue you take, there is already an answer. I've always been told that pure, you know, pure heroin diacetylmorphine has like practically zero organ toxicity. It doesn't actually do anything. Uh, like the worst side effect is constipation, basically. Um, is is that true to your knowledge? Um, in terms of like having long term toxic effects, like kidney yeah. damage or something. Yeah, I mean the. Opioid receptors are distributed in different parts of your body, but the primary effect, I mean, the heroin goes straight to the brain and acts on those opioid receptors. It isn't going to cause like damage directly to any other organs. Um, Definitely you can get like pretty severe constipation. And I mean, that can actually have pretty, pretty significant consequences in some rare cases, but the only true kind of like organ damage or long-term effects, I mean, are going to be from an overdose from someone not having oxygen or from them like laying on the ground so long that their muscles start to break down and give them kidney damage or just from like the, the associated transmission of um, kind of like bloodborne diseases because we don't have uh, syringes available to everybody. And malnutrition and everything else that goes with being. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I get what you're saying, Chris, like there's, there's all these like ancillary sort of secondary consequences of the drug, which are, policy driven and all stigma bias. Like there's so many things that cause uh, health problems for a heroin user that isn't necessarily the heroin. And, and Chris, to your point, like whenever people say that, like, Oh, you know, opioids are so bad for you and they're going to kill you. It's like, look at, look at William Burroughs. Like that motherfucker lived to be like what, 90 or something. Like, I think that that's guy, where I got that from actually. Yeah, like, 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 from like, too, like, yeah. like didn't he literally do opioids like every day of his life for like 40 years? <laughs> he lived longer yeah. than, than like, than like George HW Bush. Like, <laughs> yeah, as far as, I mean, chemical compounds go, opioids are pretty, they're pretty specific to like the opioid receptor. Um, long-term opioid use maybe can be associated with like depression or mood disorders or something, but even that isn't, isn't a super strong link. Um, and again, that's not really like organ toxicity. And that's, that's why I call it like to call it an overdose crisis. You know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with opioids. I, everybody can do them as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be dying from them, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pro-opioid anti-death. That's, 
So the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, you know, he's whatever, but he did come out and make a public statement not too long ago, and he said, quote, For patients currently taking high doses of opioids that are prescribed for pain, individuals misusing prescription opioids, individuals using illicit opioids such as heroin or fentanyl, healthcare practitioners, family and friends of people who are having an opioid disorder, and community members who come in contact with people at risk for opioid overdose, knowing how to use naloxone and basically keeping it within reach can save a life. I think that criteria basically covers everyone, and I think that everyone should basically, anyone who's listening to this, should get naloxone. We should have it co-prescribed with every opioid prescription, it should be in every first aid kit, and we should basically be flooding the streets with this shit. Yes, I second that. And I, I use the Surgeon General's advisory on naloxone in a lot of uh, presentations. And I go down his list and then say that this covers everybody, that everyone should have naloxone. That should just have been the Surgeon General's advisory is everyone should know how to use naloxone and have it available somewhere. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan, for, for coming on. This has been a treat. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks, guys. You can follow Ryan Marino on Twitter at Ryan Marino, Marino like Marina with an O. And we'll have links to how to get naloxone in the show notes and more information. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. We're on all the socials as well. YouTube, SoundCloud, Friendster, Club Penguin, whatever. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer of this episode was Garrett Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and additional music is by Chad Crouch. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we want to keep it that way. So thanks so much to our patrons who help us keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you like the program, you can join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Supporters get early access to episodes, and we're working on other perks as well. Thanks for making this program possible, everyone. If Patreon isn't for you, and no judgment, you can help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. And tell all your friends. That's all for now. Take care. <laughs>